Well, good afternoon and good evening, Rua Church. Uh, if you could open your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 7. And we will be reading in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. Once you have found it, I would invite you to please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And the men had come to him, and they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury, they are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For the John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Now, some of you might be wondering in your head about my ambitions for this passage. And yes, I am going to try in one week to get through all these verses. I hope that if I fail to do so, you will not hold me to that standard. But uh, nevertheless, in one week through verse 18, all the way through to verse 35, because I think that these verses have one unified theme, one unified message. And that message is this, who is Jesus? That's the question that is being asked in these verses. And it's the question that is answered in several different ways as these messages unfold. 
We see several interactions that take place. We see seven, several different data points that are drawn from. All of it pointing to who Jesus is. When I was a sophomore in college, one of the classes you have to take as part of your pre-med curriculum is called organic chemistry. It is famous across the nation for being a very uncomfortable class to take for most college students. And one of the things that was particularly difficult about the class was this one lab requirement we had to identify a chemical that was not told to us. We had all the tools and skills built up for us over, uh, over the course of that semester. And in the spring, one of the last things we did was take an unknown chemical that was given to us, and we had to identify what it was by collecting data, performing tests, and you only had a small sample of it, so you couldn't just do whatever test you wanted. You had to very selectively look through the data, gather information, and then draw a conclusion about what you had. When we look at Luke's gospel, Luke is doing the very same thing to us with Jesus. Unlike John, he doesn't just come out and tell us who Jesus is. He tells us that there is a man named Jesus, but as he's building his gospel, he's giving us data points and different pieces of information, and he's allowing us to collect that information and draw conclusions. That is really until Luke chapter 7 and these verses. Because in these verses, he goes ahead and he gives his first clear and final statement about the identity of Jesus, because this is the first time from Luke's gospel, Jesus is directly asked who he is. And he's asked in several different ways about his identity. And John, uh, or sorry, and Luke in his gospel comes out and gives us more evidence and more data to support the identity of Christ. So when we ask the question, who is Jesus? We are asking the same question that these people in the text are asking as well. And so I would like to invite you to look with me once again at verse 18, and we will follow the argument as it is in the text. It says that the disciples of John reported all these things to him. Now, all these things could refer to a number of different things that are present in the text. The first thing it could be referring to is everything that has preceded it in chapter 7. You remember that at the conclusion of chapter 6, we have the Sermon on the Mount coming to an end. And then chapter 7 opens with an interaction with the centurion and his servant and the healing that takes place there. And then last week, we looked at the healing of a widow's son. And all these things could refer to the centurion's servant being healed as well as the widow's son being raised up. And in light of those events unfolding, John gets that information and then asks the question. Or all these things could be referring to a bigger, broader category, which might include chapter 6 of Luke's gospel as well. Chapter 6 has the teaching of the kingdom of God, as well as the preceding verses in chapter 7 that tell us about not only his teaching, but also his work. Not only what he says, but also what he's doing in terms of healing and restoring sight to the blind. So all these things are reported to John, right? They're being spread out. These are very uh, notable events that are happening. And what happens when John receives this message is he gathers his disciples to him and he sends them out with a question to Jesus. And that question is repeated for us two times in this text. And the question is, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And it's repeated again. Now, you might at first be wondering why it's repeated twice, and it's probably easy for us to understand why it's repeated twice. Luke is underscoring the fact that this is not some vague questions that John's disciples are asking. This is a question directly from John himself. We are first told that John tells his disciples to ask these words, 
And then we see the disciples of John go to Jesus and ask those very same words. So Luke is letting us know, this is not John who sent his disciples out, and then the disciples come up with a question. This is the question John had for Jesus, and his disciples are faithfully relaying the question, which then forces the issue, which is why would John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, be the person who asks, is Jesus the one who he was the forerunner for? That is his life's work. That is the very reason he is on this earth. And it seems at this moment as though John is in a very serious place of doubt. It seems as though his faith has failed him and he is concerned and wondering, is Jesus really who I thought he was? Or did I get it wrong? Now, to understand the significance of that question, John, remember, is not some average disciple of Jesus. It would not surprise us if Thomas came to Jesus and asked this question. It doesn't surprise us when the disciples misunderstand the parables of Jesus. But John is not a disciple of Jesus in the way that the twelve are, or in the way that all of his other followers are disciples. John is a specific kind of messenger for the Christ. He is told to us in Luke's gospel in several locations to be the one who is to run ahead of the Messiah. So I would like to turn to a couple of those verses with you. The first one is verse 15 of chapter 1 of Luke's gospel. We need to know who John is to understand how significant this question is. Chapter 1 and verse 15 of Luke's gospel This is an angel prophesying to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And the angel says this about John. He says, For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he, John, will go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This angel prophesying over the life of John the Baptist says these words about him. So if John the Baptist is indeed the forerunner, then whoever he foreruns for is the Messiah. And so when John asks this question, he's not just asking about his own mission. He's asking about Jesus's identity. He's asking, are you that one? Flip with me later in the chapter to verse 76. Verse 76 is Zechariah, John's father, prophesying over his son after he is born. And he says this in verse 76 of, once again, Luke chapter 1. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. John is the most high prophet of God, and he goes before the most high son of God, to guide the people into the way of peace, which Jesus will later refer to as the narrow way, the way in which you walk into the kingdom of God. 
This is not all Luke has to tell us about John. Turn with me to chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4 is Luke once again telling us about John, this time from an Old Testament prophecy. And he says from the prophet Isaiah, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Referring to John the Baptist's ministry. Then he tells us in verse 16 of that same chapter, that John, this is from John the Baptist's mouth. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is the person who John is saying, there is one coming mightier than I. And then he, in this account in Luke's gospel, tells us that he's asking Jesus, are you that one? Are you the one who is mightier than I? Are you the one who I was supposed to forerun for? And this is really the last thing we hear about John the Baptist because in verse 20 of chapter 3, we're told he's thrown in prison because Herod did not like the fact that John commanded him to behave like a Jewish person because John commanded him to live in light of the law of God. But John is in prison and until this point in chapter 7, John has not been mentioned again in Luke's gospel. He's, if you like, gone out of the picture and at center stage has been this question of who Jesus is. And now that earlier figure, that earlier witness who Luke has given to us is coming back on the scene to deliver once again a testimony about the identity of Jesus. And he's coming this time, not in the place of assertion, but from a place of questioning. He's asking, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, you can think about how Jesus might answer this question. You can think about what John is expecting him to say. Imagine John's question gets answered and Jesus says, no, I am not the one who you were supposed to prophesy about. Well, we know that John wouldn't have stayed in prison then. He wouldn't have continued to testify against Herod. He would have gotten up. He would have probably left that place. He would have recanted his testimony. He would have gone out and he would have thought, what a waste of my life. But we know from history that John doesn't do that. So whatever answer to the question John gets, we know is satisfactory for him that in fact, Jesus is the one who is to come. Because when Jesus answers this question, it satisfies John. And if it satisfies John at his lowest moment of doubt, where he has to send messengers out from the prison to Jesus, we can be sure that this testimony should also satisfy us. If you're a believer who's been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you can be very much encouraged by this passage. Because John the Baptist is not only someone who's been with the Lord for some length of time, he's been with the Lord for his entire life. Even before he was born, he was indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And so if he, who's been with, his, with, with Jesus his entire life, and who's been a faithful servant of God for his entire life, can reach a point of doubt so low that he questions everything, And then he can come out on the other side of that, satisfied to the point of dying for the testimony which he proclaimed. Then we too, who've been walking with the Lord for a shorter period of time, can also be encouraged by that same testimony. So how then does Jesus answer John's question? You'll notice that Jesus, in fact, responds 
compassionately to John's question by actually answering it. That's notable because at other points in Luke's gospel, Luke tells us about people who engage with Jesus and who challenge Jesus to show them signs, and Jesus says, no. We know because there are skeptics in Luke's gospel, but Jesus doesn't treat John like a skeptic. Jesus treats John like a sincere believer who needs his faith encouraged. And so in verse 21, Jesus doesn't say, no, my teaching is sufficient. Go tell John that. He says these words, or sorry, he, he, do, he does this. It says, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Now that's significant because in Luke's gospel, that hasn't happened yet. So at this moment is the first time Luke is telling us about this specific event, that the blind are now receiving their sight. And then after he does all these things, remember, mounting his evidence, he turns to those disciples, and it says, verse 22, that he answered them and said, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. This is what they've seen and heard, right? That the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. That's what Jesus uses as an encouragement to John the Baptist. And then he concludes with these words, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, which would be John upon hearing this message. John is that person who he's referring to who is not offended by the testimony of Jesus. But John naturally knows something that you and I don't naturally know about these verses. Because John is a Jewish prophet, which means John is familiar with his predecessors, the other Jewish prophets, like Isaiah and Ezekiel and the witness that they bore. So when Jesus gives this answer to John, he's not just telling him, hey, John, go read your Bible and go see that these are the things that were supposed to happen. John would have known that if all these things take place, this points to an age that was prophesied about the Messiah. But you and I don't naturally know that unless any of you here have Isaiah memorized, in which case we're going to go look at those verses and we're going to see that this is a clear testimony about who Jesus is. We're sometimes dissatisfied and we think that Jesus didn't even answer the question, but he did and in such a profound way. So you just need to find Isaiah in your Bible and go to chapter 26. And we're just going to go to a couple of chapters in Isaiah, but only that one book. The first one again is Isaiah 26. And this is Isaiah prophesying about a coming day, a day when the Lord will once again visit his people and redeem them. And Isaiah refers to it first and foremost in verse 1 of chapter 26 in these terms. He says, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And he has this whole song. You can, you can just flip pages over and that song continues. But it says, in that day, this song is sung. And one of the things that's sung in that day is seen in verse 19 of Isaiah. You'll see in verse 19 of chapter 26, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for glory. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah, prophesying about the coming day of the Messiah, says that the people of Jerusalem will receive back their dead. And right before Luke introduces this to us, you'll remember that the widow has just received back her dead. Significant, isn't it, how Luke lays out his events? Isaiah 29 is the next text that's important to know. 
So just a couple of chapters over in Isaiah's gospel, or sorry, in Isaiah's prophecy. And it's verse 18 and verse 19 of Isaiah 29. Once again, referring to that day, he says, verse 18, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt the Holy One of Israel. Notice that these events that are being described here in Isaiah are being done in Luke's gospel as we read it. The meek obtain joy from the Lord. The poor are the ones who exalt God. That's funny because Jesus said, blessed are the poor because they are my people. They are part of my kingdom. And you notice earlier in verse 18 that there's deaf people who will hear and there's blind people who will receive their sight. Just like what Jesus just did in Luke's gospel. Turn with me to Isaiah 35 now, and we'll see once again a prophetic utterance from Isaiah fulfilled in Christ. This time, verse 5 of Isaiah 35. He says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams break forth in the desert. Notice here we have another thing prophesied that Luke identifies for us. Not only will the blind see, not only will the deaf hear, but the lame will walk. Just like Jesus has done earlier in Luke's gospel, taking a lame man and causing him to rise and walk. And the last one, about 30 chapters forward, is in Isaiah 61. It's the last one we'll look at in Isaiah. Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. And for those of you who've been with us in Luke, you might remember these words. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Verse 2 says, his purpose is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, what Isaiah says there in, verse, uh, in chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, is significant because that is one of the primary reasons that John the Baptist misunderstands who Jesus is. You remember he asked that question earlier, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Now, we might be asking the question, based on who John the Baptist is and all that we're told about him in Luke's gospel, that he should have known full stop who Jesus is. And we're told that John doubts. Now, the question you could ask is why? Because his prison suffering could have caused him to doubt, and that could have precipitated other suspicions. But what are the reasons that give John doubt about the identity of Jesus? One of those was actually just seen in chapter 61, verse 2. You'll notice that it says that not only is it the year of the Lord's favor, but also a day of vengeance and wrath. And that is one of the most common beliefs about the coming of the Messiah. This is ultimately why the Pharisees reject Jesus as Messiah. They say he couldn't have been the Messiah because he didn't come in vengeance and wrath and might judging the nations. For that reason and that reason alone, we put Jesus to the side and we say it wasn't him. He was not the Messiah. 
It's the same suspicion John has. He says, are you that one who is to come? Remember, John's message is about a coming day of judgment where the axe is laid to the root of the tree and there will be a day of judgment. Because in Jewish thought and in Jewish prophecy, the coming day of the Lord is referred to both as a day of salvation and also as a day of judgment. What only becomes clear later through the testimony of Jesus, through the testimony of the apostles, is that that coming day of the Lord refers to two different events in salvation history. The day of the Lord refers first and foremost to the day of salvation, the one we're familiar with that happened 2,000 years ago in the advent of Jesus coming, dying, and resurrecting. But the second day of the Lord, which is prophesied, is when Christ comes again in power as is described in Revelations. What Christians taught about the day of the Lord was that it was two distinct events that happened, and that only becomes clear through the witness of Jesus and through his apostles. In the Old Covenant, though, it seems many times as though they happen back to back with no time in between, that it's one in the same kind of day. That might be one of the reasons John the Baptist doubts, because he doesn't think that the tone of Jesus' ministry matches up with the tone of that day. He sees the salvation, he sees the good news, he sees all that, but he has questions like, when's the vengeance coming? When are you going to judge your enemies, Lord? When is that going to happen? That's why he asked the question, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? He's just not sure. The emphasis is off from what he expected. And when we have unmet expectations about who Jesus is, we can ask the exact same question all the time. John the Baptist had a conception of who Jesus was supposed to be. And when that conception wasn't met, he asks the question. And you and I do the same. But notice he asks the question to Jesus, the safe way to ask the question. This brings to mind so many times in the Psalms when David has doubts about the goodness of God and he lays those barren before the Lord. He pours his heart out before the King of Kings over all the earth. And he says, these are my concerns. These are my doubts. Are you a good God? Do you love your people? Will you hold me? Will you take your spirit from me? He pours his heart out to God. John does the same, taking his doubts straight to Jesus himself. And so what we can learn from this is that it's not bad to have doubts. It's not even bad to have unmet expectations about who Jesus is because none of us has a perfect understanding of all that is true about God and all that would be true about Jesus. We have a better understanding than John did, but we do not have a perfect understanding. And so when we have doubts, when we have shortcomings, when we have unmet expectations as we're walking with the Lord, the appropriate response is not to, quench, to suppress them down and never think about them. The appropriate thing to do is to take them straight to the one who can address them just as John does here, from prison, in a cell, waiting for that day, not sure if it's going to come. And eventually he asks the question. And his question is sufficiently answered. Because once again, we know from the witness of the other gospels that John would die in prison. He doesn't leave his post. He is faithful till the end because of the encouragement that he receives from Christ. And I think there's so much for us to benefit from in John's question and in the answer that he receives. But we've only been asking the question, who is Jesus, from one perspective so far. We've only been asking it from John's perspective, the one who's been established with the Lord for quite some time. What about the other perspectives that are addressed in this same passage? Same question, who is Jesus, but now coming from different vantage points. The first one we see is laid out there starting in verse 24, is what we, what we would call the curious crowd who's been following Jesus. From their perspective, they're asking the same question, who is Jesus? And you'll notice Jesus provides another set of testimonies about them. It says in verse 24, 
When John's messengers had gone, so we know that this is John's messengers have left, and now Jesus is turning to the crowd. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? He's talking to the crowd, the people who are with him. What did you go to see? Did you go to see a reed shaken by the wind? That's an interesting question. He's asking them, what was the reason that you thought John out in the wilderness was worth listening to? Why did you go out of your way, out of the city, out of your comfort to go see John? What was the purpose? Were you going out there to see the desert plants? Did you go into the wilderness to see all of the landscape and the beauty of that landscape? No, you didn't go to the wilderness to go see its, its landscape. That's not why you went out there. You didn't go to see a reed shaken by the wind. Then what did you go out to see? Verse 25, a man dressed in soft clothing? Nope. Because he says, behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury, they're in king's courts. So we, we know, based on the rhetorical questions Jesus is asking, that he is suspicious as to why they went out, why they went to see John. And he's reminding this crowd of people why they went to go see him. They didn't go to see John because he was well-known and because he was held up by the kings and the rulers. They actually go in spite of the fact that he has a very negative opinion among the Jewish upper class. They don't go out to see John because he's a politician, because he can campaign and he can smile and he's in a comfortable location with soft clothing and lots of luxuries and lots of amenities. They don't go out to see him for luxurious living. They don't go out to see him because he'll tell them what they want to hear. Why then do they go out to see John? Verse 26, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you more than a prophet. Jesus is going down to the people, reminding them why they went to go see John in the first place. You went to see John, not because he was a politician, but because John was a man of conviction. He spoke with conviction. He had convictions about who Jesus was. He had convictions about the coming age of the Messiah. He had convictions about morality in Israel. He had convictions about how to live in light of this coming kingdom. He had convictions about urgency. And in light of all of those teachings, people go out to see John, to hear about his convictions, and to see, are these true? And by and large, among the laity, the normal people of the day, John is very well favored because he speaks plainly. He doesn't care who he says it to. He will tell anyone if they're in sin that they're living in sin. It's one of the reasons he's in prison. And Jesus is saying, you went out to see John because he spoke with conviction, because he was a prophet. But then Jesus doubles down. He says, Don't, I just want to be clear about this. John is a prophet, yes, but he's not just any old prophet. It's like calling a Lamborghini just a car. John is, yes, rightly identified as a prophet, but he's a more significant kind of prophet than the other prophets. He's the most significant prophet of a dying generation of prophets. He's the last of the great prophets of the Old Testament. He's not just one among many. He is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. John is the prophet who gets tasked with the wonderful and glorious opportunity to run before the Messiah and to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. Accurately, yes, he's a prophet, but he is so much more than a prophet. And then Jesus says once again to this curious crowd, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. That's true. We can agree with all that based on what was just said. Then he says something surprising. Yet, 
the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Now, you might be scratching your head and saying, well, wasn't John in the kingdom? Isn't he, isn't he part of that whole thing? Because he seems to be, you know, with Jesus. And we know that everyone who's with Jesus gets into the kingdom. So how is it that Jesus says the one who's least in the kingdom is greater than John? Well, Jesus is not really referring to the kingdom in the sense of the coming salvific kingdom. He's referring to the different ages of history as they unfold. So we know about the age of Israel being established as a kingdom. And we know that in between the time of the Jewish people, there would be a time of the church age is what we call it, when the kingdom of God, as Jesus is talking about here, breaks forward into redemptive history. And in that age, living in that kingdom age, anyone who lives there is better off than anyone who lived beforehand. Not because they have a better outcome in eternity, but because there's more clear and good revelation going on in that kingdom age. It was said by one commentator this way, though no one of the old era is as great as John, everyone who's in the new era will be greater than John. And that doesn't mean better off. That doesn't mean more faithful. What that means is at a greater state of privilege because of the age in which they live. John has to ask questions like, are you the one who is to come? And he has to get witness of, I, of people being raised up. We don't have to ask questions like that because we live on the other side of the most significant event in human history. What was unclear and veiled to John becomes clear on the other side of the resurrection. What John was having difficulty making out on this side of history we can look backwards and we can understand plainly that Jesus Christ, not only was he the Messiah, but we can clearly articulate all of the different intricacies of why he came. He came to show compassion. He came to redeem sinners. And not only did he come to redeem sinners, we can tell you exactly how he came to redeem sinners, by being a substitute for them, dying in their place on the cross, and not staying dead, but coming back to life and promising us he's coming back again in judgment. All of that is clear from this side of the cross, but for John, that wasn't clear. So Jesus rightly says that John is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He's with Jesus as that age is breaking through. But John doesn't live to see the cross. And everyone who does live to see the cross and who does live to see the resurrection and who lives into the rest of eternity is better off than John was. They have a more clear understanding of the teaching of Scripture. And so, as the people are contemplating these things and they're analyzing what Jesus says, you'll notice two different responses to what he says. He says, first and foremost, there's this group of people, verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, that refers to all the lay people, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So one group of people who was with John, who went out into the wilderness to see John, who received John's message, they all, that whole group, including the tax collectors, they are all on board for everything Jesus just said. Because Jesus said, John is a great prophet. You went out to go see that great prophet, and that great prophet prophesied about me. And so all of these people who receive John's message are right in line because they're faithfully following the teaching. They're putting the dots together. Verse 30, though, tells us about a different group, a group that didn't agree, really, with the assessment of John the Baptist. It says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. That refers to the baptism of John. You remember we're told in John's ministry that he has a response among the, Pharisee, uh, among the tax collectors and he has a response among the soldiers and among the crowds in general. 
But the Pharisees scoff at John's message. Remember, they say, we don't need saving. We're not outside of God's kingdom. God will save us because we're Jewish. God will save us because we keep the law. We don't need to be baptized as though we're outside of the kingdom and need washed of our sins. We don't need that. And so in keeping with their testimony, in keeping with their logic, because they rejected John, by extension, they have to reject Christ. Because according to their own book, the Christ needs a forerunner. And so if they've struck John off the list as being the forerunner, then they have to strike Christ off the list as being the Messiah. They have to. It's a logical extension. So they reject what Jesus says. They reject the purpose of God for themselves, which, remember, is to save his people. They reject that because they haven't been baptized by John. And they got to keep in line with their logic. And so the question's been answered, who is Jesus from John's perspective? It's been answered from the people's perspective. And now John is introduced, or Luke has introduced to us the last perspective in this text, the Pharisees' perspective about who Jesus is. He says in verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? Remember, they're also asking the question, who is Jesus? What are they like? Verse 32 says, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. And here's what these children say. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. And we sang a dirge for you and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What Jesus is saying at this point is from the Pharisees' perspective, when they're asking the question, who is Jesus? He's pointing out that there is, an, there is no amount of evidence, there is no amount of style, there is no amount of strategy that's going to convince them of who Jesus is. They are going to reject whatever evidence is put in front of them. Jesus healed the blind. He healed the deaf. He healed the leper. He healed the lame. He preached good news to the poor. All of that in sight of the crowd and the Pharisees. The crowd responds favorably and the Pharisees don't. Why is that? Well, he explains it to us. He tells us their reasoning is like children. Their reasoning is like children who say to Jesus, we play the flute for you and you don't dance. And who say to Jesus, we, played a dir we sang a dirge for you and you did not weep. Now, understanding that, uh, that parallel it's, it's, a very, it's a very interesting kind of, uh, kind of statement that Jesus is giving us. It's a very interesting picture that's being painted. He's saying, if, if we could compare this interaction of Jesus trying to convince the Pharisees of who he is, like children in a marketplace trying to play a game together, he's saying the Pharisees are the ones who want to be in the position of deciding what the game is, for how long it's played, and what the rules are. They're the ones who play the flute, and they expect Jesus to dance. And they're the ones who, when they decide they don't want to do that anymore, they want to do something more somber, they want to do the funeral game, they sing a dirge, and Jesus didn't weep. Now, what are they talking about? Well, we know the order is interesting, right? They play the flute first, which is a happy instrument, and they expect dancing. And then they sing a dirge, and then they expect weeping. That's opposite of the order of Jesus and John. Remember, John comes, you know, in the mournful state. And Jesus comes in the happy state, feasting and going with sinners and partying and engaging with them in that way. 
So we know that they're not referring to uh, John and Jesus as the ones who play the flute or the dirge. They're referring to the Pharisees because when John comes in his mournful, somber state of judgment that's coming, the Pharisees say, well, hold on, John. We're going to play a flute. This is a happy time. We don't want to worry about God's coming justice or God's coming wrath. And then John the Baptist comes off the scene and Jesus shows up on the scene and he is enjoying feasts and he is engaging with sinners and the Pharisees have decided, different game, it's, it's somber time. Jesus, you cannot interact with sinners. They are deserving of God's judgment. You see how they flipped the game? As soon as, G- as John comes off the scene, Jesus comes on the scene, they decide they're playing by different rules. What he's pointing out is that just like children who want to ha- only play when they're in control, so too the Pharisees are like that. They don't want to play by Jesus' rules. They don't want to play by John's rules. They want to play by their own rules. And if Jesus and John don't play along, they don't want any part of it. They're discontent no matter what evidence is put in front of them. When John came warning of wrath as an ascetic, eating no bread, drinking no wine, they said, he has a demon. Clearly, he's not enjoying life. He should be happy right now. And then Jesus comes on the scene. It says, uh, it says comes eating and drinking. And they say, look at that man. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Because right now is somber time, Jesus, because we're under Roman occupation. They they have no concept of objectivity. They're they're completely enslaved to their own opinions. They're completely enslaved to their own pre-drawn conclusions about who Jesus was. And you kind of see an unfolding in these verses of the different questions or the different perspectives on who Jesus is, right? John's perspective is one of hope. It's one of, I I think I know who Jesus is, and I want to confirm that witness so I can be strengthened to finish the race. Then there's the people's perspective. Curious, but not really invested all the way or out all the way. And Jesus gives them a testimony, and from their perspective, they say, yes, this is truly what was prophesied. And then from the Pharisees' perspective, no matter who Jesus says he is, no matter how much evidence he gives to that effect, they will find another reason to do away with him. And don't we know people like that? Haven't we too been people like that? Who look at Jesus, who look at what he plainly demands of us, and we say, "Ah, my rule is not yours. Or we, we know people who, when we share the gospel with them, they say, yes, but God is too judgmental. And we go to another group of people and we share the gospel with them and they say, no, 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 God is way too loosey goosey with justice. And we, we, we share the gospel, and there's people who, no matter what evidence is presented, no matter how much we plead, no matter how much we stylistically engage with them, they will reject the purposes. This is the myth of uh, seeker-sensitive churches that think that the difference of, of why someone doesn't come to faith or does come to faith is in style or is in, is in flattery. It's not in those things. Jesus points that out. John came with one style. They rejected it. Jesus comes in a totally different style they also reject it. The problem isn't the style. The problem is the substance of the message. The problem is the actual content of the message they carry. They'll reject it if they say it softly. They'll reject it if they say it loudly. They'll reject it if they say it persuasively. They'll reject it if they propose it as one option. They'll reject it no matter how you present it. And don't listen to them when they say, oh, it's because it's a different game now. They'll flip the rules however they can. And so what hope is there for someone who's in that kind of state? You can't flip the style and convince them of it. You can't reason them there because they are clearly proving themselves to be unreasonable. 
How do you convince someone like that of the gospel message? Same way you convince everybody else. You preach the gospel. You offer salvation. You give them Christ. And you recognize that when the conversion happens, it cannot be attributed to style. It can only be attributed to the power of the gospel message. Verse 35 tells us this. Jesus, reflecting on that difference between his style and John's style, says, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. He basically says, I'm not going to engage with all of those uh, uh, objections that they have towards me or towards John. But instead, I'll say this. If you want to see how wise my truth is, if you want to see the wisdom of the message that I proclaim, it will be vindicated, it will be validated by the converts that that message gets. Because when wisdom bears children, the only conclusion of those children is it was a wise message. In the church, we know this. This is our story, and this is the story of those who are close to us. That there was no hope for them outside of Christ. That they rejected Christ and all of his purposes for them. And then, beyond our own explanation, beyond our own creativity, beyond our own effort, beyond even our own hope, they come to Christ and they turn their life totally around. They become completely unlike what we expected as a result of the gospel. Not because the message changed, not because the style changed, not because we got smarter or they eventually wore down, but because the transformative power of the gospel is identified by the very fact that it bears children. When sinners who are dead in their sin like Paul come to Christ, the only conclusion you can draw is that must have been God. When someone who's enslaved for years and years and years to a certain kind of sin and comes out of that freed because of their encounter with Jesus, you can only conclude it's because of a wise message. You can only conclude it's because of a powerful message. And if you reflect on your own life, you would have to arrive at the same conclusion. The only reason you and I believe the gospel is not because it became more reasonable to us one day, it's because while we rejected God's purposes and while we were rebels against God, he was pleased to shine his light into our hearts to show us the beauty of the message and change us so we don't even hardly recognize ourselves on the other end. That's because wisdom is justified by her children. That's because the fruit of the gospel is shown to be good news by the fact that you and I are converted to faith and live the lives that we do. It's the testimony of the church. It's the reason why the world does not understand us, because they have not understood him, and they have not understood his message. But because you and I have, and because we've been transformed, we can glory in that, just as Jesus here says. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word to us tonight. Lord, as we are a feeble people, a broken and rebellious generation. We thank you so much that you have been delighted to reveal your glory to us on the pages of Scripture, through the testimony of our friends and family, through the witness of someone we hardly knew, through the faithful proclamation of the gospel, Lord, we have been made into something totally new. Lord, that's only because of you. There's no other way we can explain it. There's no other way we can understand it. 
So Lord, when we ask the question, who you are, would you give us your grace to see it and to love it and to be able to endure because of it? Because you are a faithful God. You are a faithful Savior. And you care for each and every one of your sheep. And Lord, we rest ultimately in that truth. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen.